Welcome back again to Parkside Green's Bible Study. I'm Pastor Steve here in this little studio that the church has set up so I can record my own uh, uh, lessons to you since Greg Molina is no longer here uh, to do the recordings. Really appreciate all he did and special thanks to Ryan Hammond and Adam Romans who got this set up for us. Really appreciate their help. Well, I thought it might be helpful this week to start out by just reviewing a little bit of where we've been in 1 Kings so far, right? In chapter 1, Solomon was made king, you'll remember. And then in chapter 2, his kingdom was established firmly. In chapter 3, Solomon was given great wisdom from God. And in chapter 4, Solomon begins to rule wisely. In chapter 5, Solomon plans out construction, and then in chapter 6, Solomon builds the temple, uh, along with, of course, the labor help of tens of thousands of others. And in chapter 7, Solomon built his palace, and he furnished the temple, which brings us now to chapter 8, where we're going to see that Solomon dedicated the temple. Uh, There are just many wonderful elements to this chapter, and we're going to organize our study around four major themes found here. First of all, we will see God's glory in verses 1 to 13. Secondly, we'll take a look at past promises in verses 14 to 26 and also 54 to 59. Thirdly, we'll look at a petitionary prayer in verses 28 to 53. And then fourthly, we'll look at God's greatness verse 27, and also verses 60 to 66. So we begin with God's glory in verses 1 to 13. King Solomon gathered all the leaders of Israel to bring the ark out of what appears to be an older section of the city of David to its resting place in the newly completed temple. And this event apparently coincided with the feast that they had on on the seventh month of their calendar, Uh, which would be the Feast of Booths. They observed it in September or October, just about the time of year that we're in, right here in Northeast Ohio. You see, that's when the Israelites would remember the Exodus by living in temporary shelters, which contrasted sharply with this long-lasting temple they had just completed. And here they did just what the law told them to do, right? Only the priests and Levites were involved in moving the ark with long poles, never touching it. And as they moved the ark, along with the tent of meeting and all the the holy vessels, the king and the congregation sacrificed so many sheep and oxen that they couldn't keep count of them all. It was a big day in Israel's history as the Levitical priests brought the ark containing the Ten Commandments into the holy place, the, the holy of holies. And if you look at the parallel account in 2 Chronicles 5, you will see that there were 120 trumpeters and singers just praising the Lord. Well, the priests duly took the ark uh, and placed it in its spot underneath the, the big cherubim there. And when they came out of the holy place, having left the ark there, a cloud representing the glory of the Lord filled the temple in such a powerful way that the priests could not stand to continue to carry out their ministries. Uh, In some ways, I think it takes us back 
to when the tabernacle, the movable tent of meeting, had been completed in Exodus 40, verse 35. And Moses was not able to enter the tabernacle because a cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord visibly filled it. It also takes us forward to Revelation 15, 8, when John sees the heavenly sanctuary filled with smoke from the glory of the Lord, and no one could enter the sanctuary. God's glory is powerful. It's intense. So the Lord shows, I think, his approval of the temple through his tangible presence among his people, right? Through this this cloud of thick darkness, Israel experiences God's glory. It was a high point, for sure, in Israel's history, a day they'd never forget. And that leads Solomon to reflect back on the Lord's faithfulness to his past promises, past promises to David and to Moses. With the whole assembly standing before him there, King Solomon blessed the Lord, the God of Israel, who had fulfilled what he had promised to David. Now, David, you remember, initially had it in his own heart to build a house for the name of the Lord, but the Lord promised David that instead his son would do the building. And now the Lord has fulfilled the promise that he made. As the Lord promised, Solomon was now reigning on the throne, and he had finished the building, the house for the name of the Lord. Three times in verses 15 to 20, Solomon mentions the Lord's past promises to David, which are now fulfilled. And the promises go back even further to those made to Moses. In verse 56, Solomon says with a loud voice, Blessed be the Lord who has given rest to his people Israel according to all that he promised. Not one word has failed of all his good promise, which he spoke to Moses, his servant. God makes good on all of his promises, whether to Moses or to David or or to each of us who are God's children today. As verse 24 says, what God's mouth speaks, God's hand always fulfills. What God's mouth speaks, God's hand always fulfills. God has been faithful to all of his past promises, and we can count on him 100% to be faithful, to fulfill all his promises for the future as well. We're promised that God will provide all of our deepest needs in Christ Jesus. We are promised that God will not let us be tempted beyond our ability. But with the temptation, he'll always provide a way of escape so that we can be able to endure it. We're promised that when we confess our sins, God's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We're promised that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us and will answer our request. We are promised that whoever believes in God's son Jesus will have eternal life. And we are promised that those who remain steadfast under trial will receive the crown of life. Lastly, we are promised that Jesus is coming again and he is going to take his followers to himself, that where he is, we may be also. Brothers and sisters, we are standing on the promises of God 
And that is a great place to be standing on the promises of God. Well, we move now from the past promises to petitionary prayer in verses 28 to 53. In verse 28, Solomon approaches the Lord his God humbly as a servant, it says a couple of times, asking the Lord to have regard to his plea to listen to his cry and prayer that Solomon offers toward this new temple. Specifically, Solomon asks that whenever he or other Israelites pray toward the temple, that the Lord will hear and forgive. So you notice that Solomon's anticipating future problems with sin and the need for forgiveness. In verse 30, for instance, when there's sin between Israelites, Solomon asked God to act as judge, to condemn the guilty and to vindicate the righteous in verses 31 and 32. And in the future, when Israel is defeated, it's going to happen. When they're defeated by their enemies and exiled from the land because they have sinned against the Lord, when they turn and plead with God in the temple, Solomon asked the Lord to forgive them and bring them back to the promised land, verses 33 and 34. When there's drought or famine or pestilence because Israel has sinned against the Lord, if they pray toward the temple and they turn from their sin, Solomon asks the Lord to forgive them, to provide what they need, to teach them his way so that they can reverently fear the Lord. When Israel's at war and they pray to the Lord toward the temple in Jerusalem, Solomon asks God to maintain their cause in the battle. Verses 44 and 45, Solomon realizes that the problem is there's no one who doesn't sin. Right? He says that in verse 46. So when Israel sins, when they sin, not if, the question is, how is it going to be handled? If Israel's sin gets so bad that God exiles them from the land, Solomon's petitionary prayer is that if the exiles will repent with all their mind and heart, and pray toward the temple in Jerusalem that the Lord will forgive all their transgressions and grant them compassion in the eyes of their captors. After all, they're God's people. They're his heritage, right, that he rescued from that iron furnace of Egypt. And it boils down really to this. I think Solomon is saying, when we sin and pray to you, give ear, Lord, you see it in verse 52. Solomon was realistic and hopeful. Right? He was realistic about Israel's future sin, but he was also hopeful about God's future forgiveness when they repent and pray. Most of the chapter then is given to this petitionary prayer. That's the biggest section. But also tucked into this chapter, we see glimpses of God's greatness. Glimpses of God's greatness. As verse 23 says, there is no one like you. There's no one like you. God's greatness is seen, first of all, in his great purpose. You notice, perhaps in verse 60, that a key purpose of Solomon's petitionary prayer is that all the peoples of the earth may know that the Lord is God and there is no other all the peoples of the earth, right? Israel and their special relationship with the Lord is to be a witness to the world, right? Which includes walking in God's statutes and keeping God's commandments. They're a witness in that way. 
We see in verses 41 to 43 that when a non-Israelite hears of the Lord's great name and mighty hand and outstretched arm, and this foreigner comes to pray at the temple in Jerusalem, Solomon asked that the Lord answer that foreigner's prayer, that non-Israelite's prayer, in order that all the people of the earth may know the Lord's name. That had been God's intent all along, going way back to Genesis 12:3. The great purpose that God had was that in Abraham, all the families of the earth should be blessed. God's purposes then go way beyond the temple and those who at that time belonged to ethnic or national Israel. Right? The great purpose of our great God, as Revelation 5, 9, and 10 says, is that the Lord would ransom people from every tribe and language and people and nation, making them into a kingdom and priest to our God, and they, all of them, shall reign on the earth. A great purpose. And secondly, God's greatness is also seen in his great presence. Solomon knows that even after seven and a half years of construction at much expense, they should not misunderstand what the temple is all about, since God does not dwell only there. In verse 27, Solomon asks the question, will God indeed dwell on the earth? He answers correctly that heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain the Lord, how much less this house that I have built. The Lord who made heaven and earth and everything in them is in no way contained by or confined to this temple. Stephen agrees in Acts 7.48 when he says, The Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. And Paul agrees in Acts 17.24 when he says that the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by human hands. <laughs> now, clearly, the Lord was present in a special way in the most holy place in the temple, right? Filling it with his glory, yes. The temple was built that the Lord's name might be there. See that in verse 16, 17, 18, 19, 20. Again, in verses 29, 43, 44, 48, but while his name was there, God certainly wasn't limited to the temple. Even when people prayed toward the temple, you may have noticed in verse 30, 32, 34, 36, 39, 43, 45, and 49, that the Lord hears those prayers in his dwelling place in heaven. So as real as God's presence in the temple is, the Lord does not just live in a 30 by 45 by 90 foot space in Jerusalem. Again, as Solomon says, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built. God is not subject to spatial limitations. In Jeremiah 23, verses 23 and 24, the Lord declares, Am I a God at hand and not a God far away? Do I not fill heaven and earth? God's greatness is seen then in his omnipresence. Right? And amazingly, in the very next verse, 1 Kings 
we are privileged to come to the uncontainable God in personal prayer. God is lofty, yet approachable. God is lofty, yet approachable. If we want a New Testament perspective on the temple of God, the place that God dwells in a a special way, we're directed to God's people. God lives in each individual Christian. 1 Corinthians 6.19, Paul asked, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? That God lives in every single believer, and God also lives in a special way among his people corporately. Three chapters earlier in 1 Corinthians 3.16, Paul asked, Do you not know that you, plural, corporately, are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? Again, the Greek plural or corporately. Paul put it very plainly in his second letter to the Corinthians, chapter 6, verse 16, when he says, we are the temple of the living God. We are the temple of the living God. God dwells in the midst of his people. That's also why in Revelation 21, verse 22, John says, I saw no temple in the the heavenly city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. You don't need a building when God is living face-to-face among his people. There's just so much to learn here, but my 20 minutes are running out, so let's finish by quickly considering five possible applications. Number one, search out God's promises in Scripture and rest in them. Search out God's promises in Scripture and rest in them. He is faithful. Secondly, cry out to God in petitionary prayer as Solomon did, knowing that he hears you. And if you've fallen into sin, turn to the Lord in repentance to be forgiven. Right? As sinners, we are dependent on God's grace having the last word. Thirdly, join in God's great purpose that all the peoples of the earth may know that the Lord is God and there is no other. Share the good news about our great God, the one true living God. Fourthly, praise God that he is present with us wherever we go and that as we are doing his work, he is with us always, to the end of the age. Fifth and finally, in response to God's goodness to us, give our all to him. Solomon sacrificed 22,000 oxen, 120,000 sheep. In Romans 12.1, we are called to be living sacrifices. That's what our spiritual worship is giving ourselves entirely to God, our whole lives, every day, all of me. Every day, all of me. Let's close in prayer. Father, we stand in awe of you. Uh, You who filled the temple with your glory thousands of years ago, you, you now show your glory by dwelling in your people and among your people as we gather in Jesus' name. Oh Lord, we want to shine brightly for you so that all the peoples of the earth may know that you are God and there is no other. 
We praise you that you're present throughout the heavens and the earth and, and you're present with us wherever we go. You're so good in fulfilling all your promises, hearing all our prayers, and forgiving all our sins in Christ. So Lord, we want to give our all to you, all of us, every day. We praise you that in the lives of your people, your lavish grace has the last word. Through Jesus, your Son, and our Savior, we praise your great name. Amen.